0: The
1: Telegraph.
0: Telegraph. Podcasts.
1: I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we'll look at the latest news from the front line, explore NATO's strategy in the Arctic, and we'll hear from The Telegraph's Daniel Sheridan, who's in Lviv, in the west of
0: Ukraine. This hideous and barbaric venture... Of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday
1: afternoon, I sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's day 37, and today I'm joined by Dominic Nichols, the Telegraph's Defence and Security Editor, Whitehall correspondent Tony Diver, and Assistant Comment Editor Francis Sternley. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from the battlefront.
2: Hi, David. Hi, everybody. A couple of big tactical updates to, to bring up to date with. Uh, firstly, in the north, around the capital, Kiev. I mean, re- remarkable if these various reports, which all, all do seem to be saying the same thing, so uh, verified reports of the uh, withdrawal... Um, tactical tactical withdrawal of the Russians around Kyiv, um, significant pushback in in the east. Uh, so that area of um, uh, Bovary that we saw a couple of weeks ago, that that extraordinary column of thirty odd armoured vehicles that got uh, hit by Ukrainian artillery, that that seems to be clear, uh, and they're really pushing them back along the road to uh, Sumy and Chernihiv. It's a mixture, of course, of the Ukrainians pushing them back and the Russian. This much vaunted Russian redeployment, um, but I think uh, you know the Ukrainians are going with the grain of what the Russians really want to do in that area, which seems to be to to get out um, and to the northwest of the city, 20 Ks out, Hostomel Airfield, as we've talked about many many times, it has gone backwards and forwards. It was a day one objective for Russia to try and use then as a as a lily pad into their um to, for further assaults into into Kiev to to decapitate the Ukrainian leadership. Well, that that's now in, in Ukrainian hands. Um, so, an extraordinary pushback there. Um, the second thing to note is this attack in Belgorod. So, about thirty k's inside Russia. We spoke about it a couple of days ago. There was um, there were mysterious, well, there was a strike in in the in the area, um, which seemed to hit a fuel, fuel and ammunition depot. Um, and we speculated because we only had speculation to go on. But we, I think, we sort of relatively sensitively and and um, Intelligently speculated that that could either have been mishandling. Uh, There have been quite a number of documented reports of of Russian mishandling ammunition, or it could have been a Ukrainian strike. It would have had to have been uh, a ground strike because there was there was no evidence from the air. But anyway, that was that was that was a bit of a a blow. And then last night uh, in Belgrade as as well, there was a um, a logistic base, an oil facility that was attacked, which looks like it was hit by a couple of Mi twenty four Hind helicopters um from ukraine and i just highlight that if that is correct i mean there is is, again speculation that it's a false flag attack by russia so they can they can claim um they can then sort of try and launch something uh, worse than they're already doing in in ukraine i don't think that's credible i think it probably is correct that was a ukrainian strike and if so it, it really brings into focus what we've seen i think over the last the month of this war um as we've discussed, Putin and the senior Russian military leadership made three very, very bad assumptions here. They decided that Ukraine couldn't or, or wouldn't fight, that they would be Russian troops be welcomed as liberators and the Ukrainian armed forces would not be able to resist. Um, secondly, they thought that Russian forces were much better than they, they seem to have demonstrated. And thirdly, they didn't think the West would get so involved in terms of supplying military equipment. Let's park that third one for a moment. Let's take the West out of the equation. But but let's look at this attack on Belgorod. From what it says about Ukrainian and Russian military, I mean, if if it's been an air assault, an air an air attack by these armed uh, helicopters, thirty um, ks inside inside Russia, that's that's quite an extraordinary feat. And and what does it say about Russia? Bearing in mind that. If they've gone to war, they've chosen to go to war with Ukraine. This is a neighbouring country. You would have thought there'd be defences on hyper alert, um, you know, all along the border there, especially in areas of, of particular strategic significance, such as fuel depots. And even if there's not, then a strike a couple of days ago, or or a or a mysterious. Explosion at this uh, this ammunition facility should have given them pause for thought to think mm, maybe I ought to uh, maybe I ought to get a bit of air defence in here just in case, and so to to not have done that and to have suffered this strike less than forty eight hours later uh, shows an extraordinary tactical decision not to have have a have the air defence completely knitted up around that area, and and again quite quite an extraordinary leadership I think to, to 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 not have someone from Moscow send to say right fellas i think you ought to uh, ought to pay a bit more attention to the the massive logistic oil facility in belgorod and and so these are these are really basic mistakes at tactical and strategic level and you know, russia they they have the zapad exercise every year these massive massive exercises with you know, thousands tens of thousands of troops always ends up in some enormous great explosion that's supposed to simulate a, a nuclear bomb on warsaw or berlin or whoever else is upset them that week you know, they do all these exercises and they don't seem to have learned any lessons from it. So I'm just, I just think that is extraordinary. And what happens now, if, the, if there's any sense there, and Ukrainians have demonstrated they've got a lot of sense, is that they've, they've sort of the the, the, the bubbles burst. This idea that that Russia is invulnerable in, in its in its own territory um, has burst. So so we may well see more of these types of strikes over the next few days as Russia are um, okay. They are. They say they are moving around from the north to concentrate on the donbass but i mean that's a huge logistic maneuver so so even if they they're trying to claim the strategic momentum which i doubt they've got but let's say that they're trying to claim that tactically they are moving back so if ukraine are now able to to push as as russian forces are going one way they're they're helping them go that way and doing these attacks i mean this could this could signal um a, a marked turning point in the war that Ukraine is Ukraine's going on on the offensive in quite in in quite a sophisticated military operation. Um, yeah, so I'll just pause there, Francis Turnley.
0: If if I could just add a few thoughts to what Dom has just said, there, a remarkable fact uh, that I read yesterday is that Ukraine has lost seventy four of its tanks since Russia escalated its invasion but has gained 117 Russian ones. So it's currently up 43 in its tank total. Now, that's just one example that speaks to the dramatic turnaround in fortunes that we've seen for the Ukrainians since this war began. Um, You would, of course, have expected the exact opposite of that. Another development I think is very interesting is that yesterday, Russia's uh, new draft of conscripts went out. So we forget, you know, that we're used in the West to, to no longer having conscription for the armed forces. This is not the case in Russia where one can be selected to to have to go undergo months of training, um, perhaps not as many months as they would require. I think it's something between three and five months. Um, and then you know, in theory, you can be sent to to the front line, as we know has occurred it, it, during, during this war. Um, but interestingly, as I say, 134,000 and conscripts have have received their letters, Um, but they've been told explicitly and publicly by the Kremlin that um, they will not be going to Ukraine. Now, the fact that they have said that, I think, shows that they are very sensitive to the fact that um, in Russia... Amongst the population, there is disquiet about the notion of conscripts dying on the front line, and the idea that children or or, or people as young as as fifteen that we've 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 heard that may have occurred to or sixteen um, are are dying out there is enough to to be turning some of the public, at least, against the war. So a very another very interesting development, I think, is that the Kremlin have, have, have had to to make that explicit. Now, of course, whether that actually would happen or not remains the case. If Russia truly got desperate, then I can totally foresee them doing a U-turn and sending conscripts there. Um, and just one other um, development that's occurred as part of this um, fight back by the Ukrainians is, of course, we are seeing more tragic consequences of, of, of the, the war so far. More and more evidence of war crimes are now mounting in those areas that have been liberated, um, and we were reading yesterday and talking yesterday about some of the absolutely horrific atrocities that are, that are said to be being committed in Ukraine, particularly around the matter of rape um, of, of 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 women um, in 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 certain of the occupied cities, and indeed it's reading some horrific things this morning. That um, ever, online, on, on social media and through other forums, women are being sent you know, documents about how to protect themselves from rape, um, including on Instagram. Um, I mean again it just it's worth emphasizing that this is in Europe this is not far away from us Um, and we thought when the second world war ended that we would never experience these kind of crimes which of course were common at the end of the second world war um, uh, committed particularly by the Russian soldiers it must be said um, had, had vanished from Europe forever and yet it seems to have to to have Tragically returned. And if I could one just make one other remark, um, I thought it was very curious yesterday and, and telling, actually, that President Zelensky gave another of his daily speeches. And at the end, he remarked about the future. Currently, he's been only talking about the war as it's been fought so far. But he was commenting on the, uh, the, the compensation for destroyed real estate for, for his citizens and talking about how important this programme is and talking about the opportunity to submit applications, uh, etc. I just think it's very telling that already, clearly, um, Zelensky is signalling that there is an end in sight to this war. Otherwise, you wouldn't be talking about, about the world beyond, the war um, and the future of the country and i just thought it was a revealing a revealing soundbite that doesn't seem to have been picked up um, so i thought i would i would mention that but
3: I'll, I'll pause there tony diver i think perhaps there's a there's another update here that it's probably worth mentioning which is the change in the support that the uk and other nato allies are giving to ukraine and that's sort of broken over the last 24 hours so yesterday ben wallace the defense secretary convened a donor conference of western countries to discuss what support we might be able to offer uh, in the situation in ukraine and i think that's partly prompted by this apparent change in tactics from what's going on what russia is doing on the ground um we expect that probably they will attempt to bed in in the east of the country in the donbass where they're stronger over the next few weeks um but the the slight change in strategy perhaps due to the Big losses that they were taking on the ground was that they've started using long range missiles and artillery to just pummel these Ukrainian cities um, rather than attempting to take them. It's sort of turned into a bit of a war of attrition, and some of these cities are now under siege. Um, So, what happened yesterday was Western countries agreed to send more long range missiles, to send armored vehicles, and to sort of shore up uh, the Ukrainian defenses. I think it's interesting to see that. As the war changes, the level of support and the type of support that the West is offering to Ukraine uh, also changes as well. And so there's been a lot of discussion at at senior level on this side as to watching what tactics are going on, speaking to Zelensky and his people and and working out what exactly we can do to help them. Um, and, And... But according to people on on our side uh, in London, uh, that conference was a success and a lot of new support has been pledged. Uh, There are some countries which don't want to be publicly known to be submitting uh, weapons to help Ukraine, but are doing so sort of through this donor conference uh, more quietly um, because they they fear retribution from Russia. But it seems that... that that process is working quite well. Uh, and we should start to see the, the effect of those weapons sent over from, from here to Ukraine in the next few weeks, I would say.
1: Thanks, Tony. And um, There was also an interesting thing I just want to bring up before we move on, that the Prime Minister of Poland believes that Russian forces intend to capture a third of Ukraine so that Moscow will be in a strong position when it comes to possible peace talks. But from everything, Dom, and Tony and Francis, that you've all said, um, that that's, A, it seems like, the, the war, the war is going to carry on if that's their if that, if that's their goal. But B, that feels at this point anyway quite unlikely. Is is that a fair assessment?
2: I think it is a fair assessment. I, I think it is it is unlikely whether or not that is true and correct that they want to grab a third to go into the negotiations. I mean, it, it, yeah, maybe, maybe uh, we've said before we think um, ignoring for one moment um, Putin's maximalist claims of of wanting to. Get ukraine back into the fold and and all the rest of it, and the Nazis and drugs and blah 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 um yeah, if he was after a, a land corridor to Crimea and the donbass, then it was it was it's probably worth trying to grab more than that or threaten threaten Kiev to such an extent that it's um it's a bargaining chip, so it could well be that he's trying to grab a third of the country in order to go into negotiations with a uh, a stronger hand um i don't I don't think that's that might be what they're claiming now. I mean, it sort of, kind of, is what they're claiming now. Um, I think that's because they've they have to. Um, I don't think that's what what Putin would be happy with. And um, I'd have to speak to Natalia and get her view on on what the, how she thinks it would play out in Moscow and and um, Russia more broadly. But that's not, as we understand, that's not what what little the people over there have heard about. That's not what they were promised. So um, it, it could well be a, a sensible bargaining tactic, but I think it's been foisted on them. Uh, I mean the, the neg- negotiations, as we've said before, negotiations only really start in earnest when one or both sides believe that they they will not gain more from from the battlefield. Um, I think it's too early. I don't think we're there yet. I think it's getting close. Interesting that uh, Dmitry Peskov, the uh, Kremlin spokesman, said in response to that Belgorod attack, this this uh, still still not yet completely verified assault air assault by um by ukraine on the oil facility but he said of course this is not something that can be perceived as creating comfortable conditions for the continuation of negotiations it's like yeah well boo hoo dry your eyes princess i mean look what we've done to mariupol but it's interesting that he comes out and said something like that it just shows i think it i think it speaks a lot of where where they are um going into these negotiations so yeah Prime Minister Poland could could well be could well be correct on that, but I still don't think that, that would that would be um, uh, where Putin would want to be at this stage. Thanks, Tom.
1: Um, Tony, let's bring you in at the uh,
3: at this point.
1: Um, Tony, you've been off. You've been off travelling away in northern Norway. Um, can you tell us where you've been and why?
3: Yes, I have. Yeah, I had a very interesting week, actually. Uh, I was sent with Ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary, to go and look at the situation militarily in northern Norway in the Arctic. Uh, And the reason for that is because NATO has been running its biannual uh, exercise that it does up in the Arctic Circle, where it essentially simulates what would happen if Russia was to invade uh, Western countries via the Arctic. uh, And either through Norway or through Finland through Sweden Uh, and so every two years NATO puts up 30,000 troops and they have a huge war game up there and basically it's a bit of a demonstration of the West's might against Russia in that region Um, and it's also an opportunity for those different NATO countries to work out their interoperability how well do their systems work together how do they work tactically on the ground do the communications work um, all, all, all those sorts of things and so the whole point of the NATO alliance obviously is that these countries are able to work together and historically they've always worked together at the sort of top strategic level uh then uh, as time's gone they've been able to work together at the operational level and now they're really trying to sort of build systems that work at a tactical level at the, at the most local level so you can have you know french and german and uh, norwegian and british troops working actually side by side with each other on the battlefield so so we were up there to see what was going on with that operation which is which is ongoing at the moment um and also to hear the arctic strategy which is the british government's sort of 10 year long strategy and the, the way that we're going to deploy in the arctic and try and secure it uh, from the potential of aggression from either either from Russia or there is also some concern about China. So it's actually a space that we don't really think about necessarily very often. Um, but it is if you think about where the polar ice cap is. Uh, it basically has the US, Russia, China and a load of Western countries all around it. Uh, and that ice cap is fast melting, providing new shipping routes uh, and also more opportunities to open you know, military bases and put submarines up there and all that sort of thing. So it's uh, it's heating up in both senses of the word up there. And we were we were just going up there to see what was going on and, and what might come next.
1: So what kind of conversations were you having and, and overhearing ab- about Ukraine from the people up there?
3: Well, it seems like the conflict in Ukraine is being seen as a bit of a watershed moment uh, because the invading Ukraine was something even even after Crimea we didn't necessarily expect expect Vladimir Putin to do. Obviously, he defied the. Uh, the views of the commentaria and invaded it anyway and i think a lot of places particularly places like norway are now looking at reopened cold war era bases and russian spies operating in the in, right up in the north of the country on their russian border and thinking that actually it seems increasingly likely that some sort of invasion could take place uh, and so actually this exercise, it sort of happens by coincidence that this exercise is going on while there's while there's war happening in Ukraine. But I think actually what it really did was focus the minds of people who are working out there uh, who thought, well, actually, you know, this exercise realistically um, c- could be a pretty a pretty accurate dry run of what could happen. Um, I was actually chatting to, to one soldier who was saying that he was surprised at how welcoming the Norwegian people had been up in the Arctic Circle. Well, obviously, this, this exercise takes place over hundreds and hundreds of miles all up in the Norwegian fjords. And there are people who still live there. It's not cleared out for the exercise to take place. And he said, well, yeah, you know, everyone's been really really welcoming you know we've needed hotels and hire cars and all that sort of thing and you know people have been people have been really welcoming to all of these NATO troops sort of doing a huge war game on their doorstep uh and uh, <laughs> you do slightly think that if if I was a Norwegian living up there and I was living that close to the Russian border I'd be pretty pleased to see a load of NATO troops preparing for an invasion as well because uh because if it does happen then uh, it's you on the front line isn't it.
1: Don we heard your thoughts on the Arctic strategy on Wednesday um I don't know if you've got any any questions for Tony as well um considering considering his trip up there.
2: Yeah, I mean I'm very glad that um that we managed to get up there and, ha- and have a good look around. I'd just be very keen to hear from Tony if um the, the noises that were coming out from the non-aligned countries, so I think Sweden and Finland were involved or had observers to a certain extent. Did you manage to get any chats with the with those those people at all and just see what their what their views were Tony?
3: No, we didn't speak much to, to the Swedes or the Finns, actually, um, although you're right, they were involved in the exercise. Um, we were sort of speaking to people on the British side, the Royal Marines who were working up at the a base there uh, and, and the Norwegians who were sort of hosting them. Uh, but, I mean, you get the sense that these people are, are working together more and more and that you're know, talking to commanders who are actually, you know, involved in deploying troops on the ground during this exercise uh, that, you know... Increasingly, they're, they're talking to each other every day and working with each other constantly. So I think, yeah, I mean, I, 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 clearly you would expect someone in their position to be trying to portray sort of unity and their ability to work together. But from what we saw, uh, it did seem that that was the case. And
1: Tony, you're, you're working on a story at the moment about the Arctic. I mean, the, the question you said to me was, is the Arctic the next Ukraine? And you've mentioned some, some of some of your thoughts previously. Do you want to sort of sum that up a little bit? You know, what what does that mean? And what does that mean for Britain? And what does that mean for Europe?
3: Yeah, well, it sounds, a bit, it sounds a bit glib to put it like that. Um, you're right. Those are my words. And we'll see whether or not that's the, the words that make it into the papers uh, on Sunday. But, yeah, I mean, that base, basically the question is to what extent is there a really serious threat here and, and to what extent is this just posturing? Um, but people that we spoke to said that the, the Russian presence in that region is getting stronger and stronger and that, that Russian submarines recently made their way into the North Atlantic for the first time um These are nuclear submarines that 've got the capacity to launch nuclear warheads, and they also deliberately surface and sort of popped their periscopes up where they knew that they would be seen by the Norwegian authorities because uh, they wanted to, I think the feeling on their side is that the Russians basically wanted them to know that they were there. Um, And so there's this sort of brinkmanship going on the whole time. And we know that while NATO has been running this massive exercise in the Arctic circle, there are also Russia has been watching very closely to see what the sort of capability that NATO countries have got is. Um, Now, clearly The fact that Norway was a founding member of NATO and is therefore subject to the Article 5 uh, uh, collective defence agreement means that if there was to be any sort of serious invasion up there, then, you know, it would it would be a full scale superpower West versus Russia war. Now, say that it does feel that that's a lot less likely than what we're seeing in Ukraine, which is clearly uh, something in between. But we probably should take these people at their word. And when they say they're pretty worried about it, then uh, then. Perhaps we should listen.
1: Thank you very much, Tony um, Francis. Can I bring you in at this point? Um, because we're obviously speaking with Tony about the future of the Arctic regions um, and the NATO exercises up there. But there are there are other developments in European uh, politics coming up as well. We've got Hungarian and French elections um, in the next few months. Can you talk a little bit about this? How has the how has the Ukraine war Im- impacted on, on the on, on these elections?
0: Yes, we've already touched on it this week, the way in which the conflict has already had and is having profound uh, consequences on not only the European political and cultural landscapes, but actually globally, um, particularly in, in in Africa and other places that, that you normally would rely on the wheat supplies from Ukraine and Russia, which, of course, have been impeded by this whilst it's been suggested that they have enough sort of supplies for the short term in the long term, this will undoubtedly have quite profound economic uh, consequences. Um, But yes, in Europe, we've got two elections coming up in, in in a short space of time, which are going to be highly relevant to this. The most the in this country, the one that's being followed most closely, of course, is the French election. And um, until recently, really, it was assumed that um, the president, uh, Emmanuel Macron, would, 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 would win very comfortably. Um, it would have, it appeared that the, the, the right and the far right were split. Um, between, um, on the far right at least, you had Marine Le Pen um, and and Eric Zemmour um, but actually Zemmour has fallen away and in a way that has actually quite profoundly affected the dynamics of the French election because um, in his presence as being even more extreme than Marine Le Pen has traditionally appeared she now appears almost more moderate than uh, the, 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 as a consequence of his appearing in the race and, and initially doing, doing very well in rallies etc. And so so there are some suggestions, certainly in, in in recent polling, that she could be contesting Macron much more closely than previously believed um, in the runoff, um, because it would it, the first round. Um, is is coming up I think on the 10th and then there is a second round runoff on on April 24th and um, between the two uh, closest uh, and highest scoring candidates so much still to left to run in the French election I'm actually going to Paris um, tonight and, and spending a few days there and it'll be interesting speaking to some of our journalists out there and hearing what they have to say about that and I'll, I'll be delighted to, to report back next week um, but in terms of the Hungarian election also similarly um, quite similar Significant. That's on Sunday, and it's the first parliamentary election for 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 quite some time. It's significant because never before in the past twelve years has Viktor Orbán's state really faced a challenge um, from from within. And whilst he's still the favourite to win uh, the election, it's a significant moment because Orbán is for is seeking a fourth consecutive term. And the opposition, which is a collection of sort of far left and uh, um, parties, but also more sort of traditional liberals and, and, and greens are trying to oust him. And there is actually, if you look at the polling, a, a, a chance that this, this, this could happen. Why does this matter geopolitically and in its relationship to Ukraine? Well, Orban is one of Putin's closest European allies. Um, and although the government hasn't blocked EU sanctions against Moscow. It has refused to reduce Hungary's heavy reliance on Russian energy and refused to let weapons headed to Ukraine transit through the country. So of course, if Orbán wins, then this in Europe, you have somebody who is perhaps is more aligned with um, Putin in certain foreign policy strategies. Um, if he loses, then this is seen as a referendum on his approach to the war, and it would be likely that there would be a further shift um, uh, a, a against um, Putin within that country and more of it's just, I mean, in, in the, from the perspective of the Hungarians, this is being seen as a bit of a referendum as to west or east. You know, where does our future lie? Similar, of course, to ones faced in Ukraine um, in recent years. So, um, again, a very significant election there. Two very significant elections in relation to this conflict. If Marine Le Pen wins, and I would say that this is actually uh, an example of, of where um, there may be somebody who is slightly more um, hesitant to engage quite as strongly with European partners against Putin Um uh, we don't yet know what, exactly what her policy will be. She's been deliberately vague on that. And as I say, in Hungary, also significant in terms of, of how, it, uh, how its future will align with West and East and how it, what, its approach will, what its approach will be about Ukraine. So a, a significant um, uh, couple of weeks ahead. And, and we've talked before about the, the way in which the, 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 the electoral plates are shifting in Europe. And we're already seeing evidence of that as a consequence of this conflict
3: that's really interesting i think and i think we're also seeing the political consequences become pretty severe in the uk as well i just might just be worth having a quick chat about the uh, the latest situation with ukrainian refugees um which perhaps is more of a sort of procedural uh governmental issue than an ideological one but uh the latest on that is that there are. we know that there are these two big schemes. There's the family visa scheme, which if you've got Ukrainian family members, you can invite them to come over to the UK and they'll be given visas by the UK government. Uh, and then we've got this other sort of matchmaking scheme where basically you can offer to host Ukrainian refugees in your home and the government will pay you to do it. Uh, and in the last day or so, what we've seen is that Ukrainians coming over to on the invitation of their family members who live in the UK are often arriving to find that the family members don't actually have space to put them up in their homes, so they've sort of used the fact they have a family connection to get the visa but once people actually arrive there's not really anything, there's nowhere for them to stay and the government's made no additional funding available for this eventuality um, In slightly classically given what we've seen so far with, uh, with the refugee scheme, so what that means is that these people are being made homeless, so you've got Ukrainian refugees who've travelled, who've been made homeless in Ukraine, travelled across Europe, arrived in the UK with the promise of, you know, a, uh, somewhere, a roof over their head and the opportunity to rebuild their lives, um, and are finding themselves out on the streets. So that's that's a pretty serious uh, problem for the government, but what the government has done also is improved its uh, scheme for people to invite refugees who aren't their family members. Um, there was the sort of slightly shambolic, what was described in Parliament as a Kafkaesque situation of these refugees being reached out to by people in the UK on Facebook. Some Ukrainian refugees were getting something like 300 messages on Facebook from different people in the UK who wanted them to come uh, to Britain that Facebook had to shut down some of the Facebook groups that were managing this issue just because there were so many people who were trying to sort of match up with people. Um, there 's now actually a formal system that 's been created, the government 's back to charity, which is which is providing a what is essentially a matchmaking service uh, for people in this position and it, so it looks like on that front this system might be headed towards something that actually works, but I think we 've actually seen a very relatively few people come over on that scheme so far so um at the moment. Uh, perhaps you might say the government's not done a particularly good job of managing this, uh, but it looks as if, certainly on the uh, outside of the family visa issues, it might be getting a bit better. And I think that that will provide some political boost for the government on this, on this issue, because while it's generally seemed to have done a lot to provide military support and humanitarian support over in Ukraine, um, unfortunately, as we've said before on this basis... The actual administration of running a refugee scheme is run by the Home Office, which slightly inevitably means that it is not going to be very good.
0: If I could just add to that, of course, the other way in which the conflict has had a big impact on UK political discourse is the cost of living crisis. Um, Already we are seeing many, many people listening today Will have uh, faced a much steeper energy bills. Now, of course, the cost of living crisis was already pre-existing prior to the invasion, and uh, as, as, as long-term consequences, particularly of um, of, of the COVID uh, COVID crisis and, and and the government's sort of ambitious plans for Leveling Up, etc. But even so, it has had a consequence there. And um, as I say, that's not just not just in in, in Britain. It's also happening a, a, around the world, and that will put additional pressure on democratically elected leaders to uh, shorten the war and perhaps make some concessions in order for that war to end, uh, a- end um, sooner rather than later. Just one other thought on that. It's, I think it's been very interesting that uh, the ruble has bounced back in recent days. It had collapsed more or less after the invasion and it is now back to almost pre, uh, t- pre-crisis levels. There are several reasons for that. Um, One is, of course, that the energy, as we've talked about many times before, the cost of of, of energy um, for or the usage of of energy in Europe, should I say, is still extraordinarily high, almost a billion dollars worth a day going to the Russian economy as a consequence of of gas and and, and oil. Um, But also, uh, it's, Artificially been bolstered by uh, by Putin by closing certain uh, tr- stock exchanges and, uh, and, and and reinforcing the uh, um, uh, sort of certain mechanisms within the Russian economy. So it is not all that it seems, but even so, it is um, quite startling, I think. And there was a very interesting thread that I was reading on Twitter by somebody who's actually stationed in Moscow, um, and it would be very interesting to hear Natalia's take on this in due course. That uh, actually the impact of the war is not quite as severe as we might expect in Russia. Of course, those who work in international ind- industries are feeling it very acutely and certain people have been laid off, etc. But actually, um, in terms of the ordinary, ordinary people, many of them are saying, you know, that the war will not last long or, or the special operation, should I say, will not last long. And so they're thinking in terms of, oh, well, this will only last a few months um, and then things will go back to normal. Of course, much was made of McDonald's withdrawing and all of these Western companies but of course that's not immediate so you know as far as many Russians are concerned and in particularly in Eastern Russia McDonald's for instance is is still open and operating um, and its franchise etc so um it's not actually perhaps as clear cut as we as we think in, in terms of of how this is impacting the russian economy now of course what we don't know is whether long term we're going to see actually if the war does drag on and and the consequences of it are made uh, more and more clear to the russian people whether their attitude will will harden and they will want to go even further for absolute victory or whether it will soften and, and, and the Kremlin will have to make further, further withdrawals due to public pressure. It's too early to say, but I think it's very, very interesting that here in the West, we are now starting to feel the consequences of this war, perhaps sooner than we expected. But that is not necessarily the case in Moscow and in the rest of Russia. And that's perhaps quite a worrying development. Well, it'll be very
1: interesting, I think, next week to get Natalia back onto, onto this podcast and we can talk to her about that. Thanks very much, Francis. Um, it'll be several days before before we, we meet again. Uh, can I get your thoughts of what to look for over the weekend before we talk again on Monday?
2: For me, it's the tactical position. If uh, Ukraine managed to push this 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 Russian withdrawal faster than it might want to go, it could really collapse and that would be That would just be disastrous for Russia. Um, It also looks as they as they are falling back. It doesn't seem to be in quite the ordered fashion you would you would hope of falling back through its own lines, because there does seem to be a number of pockets of uh, of Russian forces that are going to be cut off. So I think I think the next few days, as Russia tries to do this redeployment and uh, and Ukraine, harry them along, uh, it could be it could it could be quite um, quite telling uh, what shape the Russians come out of it in.
3: I think we need to keep watching what's going on in Mariupol. Uh, it's difficult to understate how important that is for, for the Russians to, if the Russians were to capture it, uh, for them to reinforce their supply lines through into the Donbass and also into Crimea. Um, there was that ceasefire that was announced yesterday, and there's some reports of civilians evacuating. Um, if that, if that does mean that Russia is able to take Mariupol, then then that's a pretty serious development. But uh, as Dom says, the overall trend really is, is is towards a weakening of Russia's position in that area and not a strengthening. So um, that, I think, is, is the one that I'll be watching out for.
0: Um, and finally, as I say, the Hungarian election on Sunday will be very interesting. Um, there has been talk that it will not be a completely fair election. There's been many criticals of the illiberal, illiberal state that... Um, that Viktor Orban has created there but even so it will be very interesting I think to see what occurs there and 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 the kind of polling that we see and, and whether this crisis has, has in those nations in Eastern Europe started to lead them more towards the West or perhaps consistently still um, offering some perhaps greater support to Putin than we might expect so that will be very very interesting and I'd love to talk about that next week. On Thursday, I spoke to The Telegraph's defence and political correspondent,
1: Danielle Sheridan. Danielle has been in Ukraine for a few days now. Currently, she's in Lviv and has been meeting refugees and local defence volunteers. Most nights, she's been forced to sleep in bomb shelters. I started by asking her where she's been and what she's been doing.
4: So I've been in Lviv, which is a city in the west of the country, It's the safest area, although there was an incident nearly a week ago now when Biden was speaking in Poland. There was a strike at a fuel depot in Lviv and um, the mayor of Lviv said that it was um, Putin saying hello to Biden. That was significant, not only because of the devastation that was caused, but also they could have miscalculated. Um, so myself um, and two colleagues drove to Lviv from Poland. Uh, so this is how we cross the border. Um, it's you know less than two hours um, from from the Polish border. So it, to to mess around playing games, sending airstrikes as a way to antagonise. Uh, President Biden is quite a belligerent thing to do, and it raises the question: the slightest miscalculation. If that strike had gone into Poland, then that is the start of World War Three.
1: So, you've been there for a few days now. What's it like to hear the bombing every, every every night and to go into the shelters? What's What's your experience of that?
4: So, I haven't heard bombings, but I've heard air raid sirens. So, they go off if there's suggestion of a, a missile strike, and it is. The weirdest thing, because if you walk around Aviv, its architecture is completely in place. Buildings haven't been um, struck down. People are going around their daily lives. It's a really stunning city. It feels European. Um, I wrote about it the other day, but it's uh, you know known for its chocolate and coffee. It has really trendy restaurants, um, cool bars. People are going about their daily lives. And so it's really bizarre to then hear the air raid sirens going off. And it happens during the middle of the night as well. So, you know, you're fast asleep and um, and suddenly you get woken up by a tan and you hear the noise outside. And that, that is just strange for someone like myself who's never, you know, grown up and a bit, a bit even existed in a war zone. However, you know, there's, there is a thing called message fatigue. To me, it was quite shocking because it's the first time I've been here, but for people that have been living through it for over a month now they aren't so fussed about it um in terms of during the day they go off constantly and people are just stood outside like you know smoking and drinking their coffee and chatting away like not really seemingly fussed by by the commotion um however it will be waking them up in the middle of the night I'm sure, and I. my point was that I can't imagine how tiring that is to every night have your sleep disturbed by these sirens that go off for sometimes hours.
1: You've been speaking to lots of refugees from Mariupol. Um, what have you heard from them? What have they told you?
4: Oh, that that is really devastating. I mean, these aren't refugees I've deliberately sought out to be from that area. I just happened to be talking to them, and, and, and it, it turned out that that's where... Um, a few that I spoke to were from the trauma is so palpable um, I was speaking to one woman and she just burst into tears at the train station so she was there with um, her two young children and she explained that she was crying because she'd seen everything. Um, I should say we we work with a translator. What she's saying, it's not like it is her genuine emotion that's being conveyed to me through through someone that can speak the language. And um, it's just so sad to see someone kind of in such despair. I've spoken to a number of, pe- number of people from Mariupol and the message is consistent that they have left family behind whom they cannot reach because there's no way of um communicating with them due to the lack of um, internet connectivity there they have no idea if their home is still standing they've left everything behind they left with uh minimal items um documents some cash and a few possessions they pack some clothing that's it they're all having to now start new lives um the, the, there was a woman who I spoke to yesterday um, whose husband is a, a fighter in the Ukrainian military and she hasn't spoken to him in a number of days. Um, and the last time they spoke, the connection was so poor that she only got you know a couple of words when he was speaking. I can't even imagine what it's like to to lose your home and have to flee, but then also knowing that your loved ones are trapped there. Um, and then you have no way of communicating with them and you don't you don't know if they're safe like it's it's just awful
1: so when you talk to these refugees do many of them plan to stay in ukraine or are they do they tell you of going to other european countries what's their plan now
4: so i was speaking to someone from unicef yesterday and um, it was really interesting he was saying that the majority of People want to stay in Ukraine, um, even if it means living in a different part of the country they they don 't want to to leave you know, everything that they know their culture, their home they would like to start again in in Ukraine, but a number are having to leave the country so um, the United Nations estimated on um, Wednesday that four million refugees have fled Ukraine. While six, six and a half million people have become internally displaced. So the, the number that have stayed within the country is, is larger than those that have uh, moved across the border. And then where they're going, I understand is, is Poland. Um, I heard someone say today that a number are traveling to Sweden. So people are dispersing across Europe.
1: Um, in some of your reporting, I, I read your interview with um, Anna Lovinenko, um, who was a new mother from Hessen. Um, I thought it was incredibly moving. Would you tell us a little bit about her and her experience?
4: I mean, that really got me because she's 33 and, you know, I don't have children, but my one of my sisters does. And just hearing what she was saying about how excited the family were, um, starting... Um, you know, their first child, starting this new chapter in their lives together, how they were so excited to have the grandparents involved. They'd been planning all these things. And I just was able to relate it to my own sister and think of exactly what her pregnancy was like. And then as this woman's due date neared, she had to go underground into a shelter and seek refuge. It became apparent that she wasn't going to be able to give birth in in her hometown because it was too dangerous. So they fled leaving her family behind. And um, again, like all the other stories I've heard from um, people that have had to flee their homes, you know, minimal possessions, cash, their documents, that's about it. And when we met her at a refugee centre, she was there, so her baby is two weeks old, and she was there uh, to get the most basic things, nappies, and she was having to come every two um, twice a week, I think. She was having to come there and sit for hours to collect these these nappies and other essential items for her baby. I'm I'm sure lots of women are um are not even leaving the house at that stage, um, because obviously their body's been through this huge trauma giving birth, and yet here this woman is having to march along to a refugee centre um to get the basic necessities for her newborn. She was being very stoical about it, but when she said that quote about not being able to cry well, beginning to cry every day but then realizing it affects her breast milk so having to stop herself from crying you know stifle these emotions in order to allow her baby to feed I just found it so harrowing and also these are kind of the the after effects of what war does to people aren't they 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 neglect their emotions and and they come out in other ways further down the line and i I presume that you know this is going to be something that Really, well, I'm sure everyone would be affected. From the, um, the Ukrainians and Russians will be affected by this war for many years to come.
1: Aside from refugees, you've also also been meeting some of the local defence volunteers. What what what's the atmosphere there like? Are they a month a month in? Is their morale good? And what are they What are they training to do?
4: Yeah, so that was very interesting. This morning, um, I went down to a school that's been transformed into the. Warrior of Self-Defence initiative um, and they are it started up on day one of the war and volunteers are coming down and teaching people how to use guns AK-47s and also um, self-defense and first aid but not your basic first aid um, you know what to do if a limb is blown off how to use a tourniquet that kind of level of first aid. I would say that the atmosphere is very much you know, people are just taking it in their stride. I spoke to a number of young women that were there and they were just saying, you know, this is something we have to do. It's important that we learn how to protect ourselves. One woman I was speaking to, she's 22, just saying that she could just sit at home and stay safe, but she really wanted to get out and learn how to use a gun so that she can do her bit to protect her country, that she's not willing to just, you know, sit at home and, and hide. And I told her I thought she was incredibly brave because I honestly don't know I could say I'd do the same thing if I had the option, if if, if I was in her situation. I, I think um they are not aware of how how um, hysterical they are, um being so matter of fact about the situation and, and just taking it in their stride and going out and learning how to pick up a weapon and, and defend themselves.
1: The next question is something we asked Colin Freeman in Kiev but when you introduce yourself as a, as a British journalist do you get any response from people usually or do they just again do they just take that in their stride as well?
4: Actually people seem to really light up when you say you're um, from the UK um, and Everyone mentions Boris Johnson. What do they say? <laughs> I was speaking to a man. We went to a refugee centre and met um, a young family Whose daughter Dasha? It was her ninth birthday, and they were having a little party um in in one of the rooms upstairs in this centre. And um, they had blown up balloons, and they got a small chocolate cake and a party hat, and it was very sweet. And anyway, her dad was talking to myself and the the photographer I'm with, Paul. And um, at the end of the interview, he just went um, and oh, Boris Johnson he's great. We love Boris. <laughs> um, and I was like, oh, that's nice. Um, and he said, you know, he, he's, he's really been a friend of uh, Ukraine. And that, that's really like a, a sentiment that has carried through. I also interviewed earlier today, um, the mayor of Lviv. He was really singing um, Johnson's praises. He says something along the lines of Johnson acts and then he lets everyone know what he's done. He doesn't care about his own PR. He's here to help the Ukrainians um, first and foremost. In him saying that he was kind of suggesting that other countries would rather talk up what they intend to do and then help. Whereas um, they believe that the UK is doing it in the complete reverse at so at these refugee centres there's lots of clothes um that have you know been sent from all over Europe and um we saw one little boy um grab a grab a pair of shorts that had um the Union Jack on them and he seemed quite proud to to wear those shorts. So um yeah people really do seem to be um pleased to to speak to you when you say you're a British journalist, which is is quite pleasant.
1: To people listening around the world who, you know, live in all sorts of different countries and probably some probably quite far from Ukraine, what would you want them to understand about the conflict if there's one thing?
4: I don't know. There's not just one thing that people need to understand, is there? Um, I suppose I know that when I read about conflict and, and, and destruction, I want to know what I as an individual can do to help. And there are so many wonderful charities out there um, that I would urge people to research and get involved with. Um, So earlier today, I went down to the World Central Kitchen, um, which is an amazing initiative. And they're cooking really yummy food for um, displaced citizens and refugees. All around Ukraine, they've got restaurants in a number of cities. serving up really really nice food and um, nutritious food that um offers you know something comforting to the these people that have lost everything so um you know that might be a really great charity to to donate to to get involved in and i've seen firsthand the amazing work they're doing so um it's definitely something i would recommend and and also um i was speaking to one of the directors and he was saying the amount of pregnant women that are that are now on um you know living out of shelters and they're trying to make sure the the food they're serving up is as nutritious as possible so um i do think it, it's a really um important charity and something that people can get involved in um and also i'd say just 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 people should keep reading about this and keep the dialogue open um and not allow fatigue um of an awful war um get the better with people the the more you continue talking and reporting about about these matters the the more pressure is put on politicians to act and i think it's important that we don't lose sight of how dreadful this situation is and continue the dialogue because you know it's only with the world's focus on what putin is doing that hopefully It will force them to stop, although who knows what the outcome will be.
1: To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our daily Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you found this show helpful, follow Ukraine, the latest, on your podcast app. And if there's something we could do to make it even more useful, do let us know. You can email podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. Ukraine, the latest, is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear. And today on Twitter, Carla Abreu.